This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, October 18th, 2023. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, a preview of the second annual Makers Fair at the Fayetteville Public Library. It's going to be an amazing day. I'm, I'm super excited and so, so humbled by um, all the creators that are willing to share their work with us as a community. Plus, a series devoted to thriving with neurodiversity. How can we provide workshops that they can come and they can leave with the right tools for them to learn how to cope with stress, how to cope with changes? And researching violence against Native women. You know, we knew instinctively that the data was really troubling, um, but it wasn't until that data was published, because oftentimes Native people are, like, classified as other. Before all that, this hour's news from NPR. Support comes from Carmelita's Modern Mexican Cuisine at 7022 West Sunset Avenue, Suite 5 in Springdale. Serving authentic Northern Mexican and Southern California lunch from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., Modern Mexican dinner 5 to 9 p.m., Monday through Friday. More at carmelitasnwa.com. The Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville invites guests this October for Halloween-themed events and programming for all ages and abilities. Hallow Steam takes place October 19th through the 31st for hands-on fall-themed activities. And on October 27th, Hallow Zing for children's special needs and their families in a sensory-friendly environment. More at amazium.org. The Eureka Springs Original Ozark Folk Festival featuring John Fulbright, Brennan Lee, and Trout Fishing in America takes place November 9th through the 11th. More at eurekasprings.org. Welcome to Wednesday. This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday, October 18th, 2023. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Whether you're listening on your radio, with your smart speaker, or online, thanks for spending some time with us today. Ahead on Ozarks at Large, a new series on thriving with neurodiversity. We hear from Damara Baker and Sandy Wright. That's in our second half hour. The Fayetteville Public Library is hosting its second annual Maker Fair on Saturday. Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis sat down with Shelby Fleming. She's the Fabrications and Robotics Lab Coordinator for the library. And she says the Maker Fair is actually an international event that they've brought to Northwest Arkansas. And it's going to culminate of over, uh, we had 34 makers and vendors last year, and we have 65 this year. So we've almost doubled uh, the amount of things that are going to happen at, uh, during Maker Fair. Um, and we've kind of blown it out of the water this year with some local artists making installation pieces that the community got to help build. Um, and then we have a lot of just individuals that are interested in making giant light-up installations, uh, eight-foot-tall moving Ferris wheels. There's a giant four-foot marble maze that's going to be there, too. So there's just something for everyone. Um, We also have some musicians that are going to be playing on the Gathering Glade during the event. Um, And then if you want to dive deeper into uh, learning about digital fabrication and art making or um, learning about how maker spaces have really changed... uh, how we perceive uh, how to create things. Um, there's going to be lectures on those things that are happening in the Walker Room. So it's going to be an amazing day. I'm I'm super excited and so so humbled by um, all the creators that are willing to share their work with us as a community. Can you highlight some of those creators you're most excited to see this year? Yeah, I think um, 
There's three big ones that uh, we actually reached out to the artists ahead of time to create interactive community building experiences. So one is artist Jason Jones. Uh, if you guys have seen painted mural robots around town, that's Jason Jones. Uh, he actually made an eight-foot-tall uh, giant cardboard robot. Um, I'm sure a lot of patrons have seen it over the last month and a half. Uh, and the community got to come in and uh, build with Jason uh, different accessories that went onto the robot. Um, and then Faye Game Studios is another uh, collaboration that we have um, for Maker Faire. They're actually taking Jason's robot, CAD modeling it up, and creating an almost Pokemon Go uh, augmented reality experience where you get to go around the library, find the missing parts of the robot, uh, come back to the robot, and it'll create an animation. Wow. Um, so, yeah, there's those large experiences. And then um, we also have uh, Dandy Pants, uh, who is a local artist that makes uh, giant rocking horses. They're kind of neon. You might have seen them at a few concerts or events. Um, they are making us a giant bookworm bench that people can sit on and take photo ops. Uh, and the community actually gets to help paint them this coming weekend. So there's been a lot of community involvement this year. Yes, yes. Can you speak on, you said that, you doubled the amount of artists attending this year. Can you speak on that growth and sort of what has allowed for that? Yeah, I think um, a lot of it is we started early this year. So we started kind of starting to promote and looking at different artists and kind of advertising in May. Um, so we got a, a earlier set on it um, this year. And then it also helped that like we started telling people and educating more on what is Maker Faire and who all can be involved in Maker Faire. Um, sometimes the applications, because uh, it's through Maker Faire, the branded website, uh, can be intimidating. So it's more of like doing info sessions or talking to our patrons in person um, and encouraging them to apply. And uh, when they had these <laughs> crazy abstract ideas that didn't seem to fit the application, it was talking with them through how they would apply. Um, and that, yes, they do fit into this category. Um, so it's it's more of just like encouraging people that might not have thought that their work could have been included before. Um, so it's a lot of <laughs> community outreach uh, and then just like trying to promote online as much as possible. Um, and it's become a big word of mouth this year too. Uh, I had a lot of makers come in my lab uh, and then they are talking to each other like, oh, are you are you applying to Maker Faire? Are you going to be involved? Like, And then another patron being like, well, I'm building this giant eight-foot Ferris wheel and we're laser cutting it everywhere. And everyone's like, wait, I need to get involved too. Uh, so, and, and then there was a few patrons that didn't feel like they were quite ready for this year, but it got them thinking about next year. Um, so I think we'll have, you know, an even bigger turnout next year. So a lot of this, these conversations are happening in the Innovation Center? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The um, Fabrication Robotics Lab has just become the hub for Maker Faire almost. Um, and there's a lot of projects that are being made in the Fabrication and Robotics Lab that will be in Maker Faire. So the eight-foot-tall Ferris wheel that I was talking about, that'll be moving interactive piece uh, where people can actually like make their own figure that can ride the Ferris wheel. Um, so there's an interactive component to it, but all the parts were laser cut in our lab. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners maybe a little bit about the Innovation Center, just in case they don't know too much about this uh, community resource? Yeah, so the Center for Innovation is located on the first floor of uh, the Fayetteville Public Library. Um, in our space, we have a full fabrication robotics lab that has 3D printing, resin printing, uh, lasers that cut and engrave different materials. We have large format printing and heat pressing. Um, also in our space, we have... Um, 
a full audio recording studio, a full green screen video studio, um, and patrons can take orientations on uh, how, how the equipment operates before they uh, book out the space themselves. Um, we have to. We also have a full photography studio where people can rent out um, Canon cameras, uh, different tripods, backdrops. Uh, we have those available for rental. Um, right now, we're, we're actually recording from our uh, podcasting booth um, that's located in our Mac lab. Um, we also have a Mac lab with 12 computers that has the fullest Adobe suite, post-editing software for audio and videos also on there, and CAD modeling softwares. Um, and then also we have a uh, kind of virtual reality and simulations lab. So the simulations lab, we have a car simulator, a truck driving simulator, airplane simulator, a redbird flight, I'll be specific. <laughs> we have a lot of pilots that come in with their students and they practice during bad weather days and they can log their hours that way. Um, we have a forklift simulator and we also have um, two caterpillars that rotate out to different pieces of equipment. And right now they're set up as a backhoe and a... Uh, excavator. Um, and then our VR uh, lab um, has just switched out to workforce development so people can earn certifications in HVAC, electrical, plumbing, HVAC, and solar. So there's a lot happening down so here. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, yeah, just one facet of the library that's just tremendously expanded with the new expansion. Absolutely. So, so Back to Maker Faire, um, you've mentioned a ton of collaboration that uh, will take place between artists and attendees. What can attendees expect to take away from Maker Faire? Yeah, I think last year it inspired a lot of people to get involved. Um, I think it also made people realize how many creatives are in the community. Um, and I know last year it kind of like promoted people to collaborate more community-wise. Um, so we had uh, Interform was here. Um, they're a, uh, a sewing sewing fashion organization located in, uh, in Springdale. So there was a lot of um, overlap between them and the fashion designers that we saw applied this year. Um, uh, one fashion designer, Braxton, is actually bringing 18 mannequins with his like full two last lines that he uh, created for NWA Fashion Week. So you're going to wow. see that at Maker Fair, um, and then just seeing, uh, yeah, just so much community uh, being built just in the maker community and making lifelong friendships. I mean, <laughs> that was the thing that happened is uh, a lot of these creators didn't know each other and now yeah. they're just, you know, collaborating every day on different projects in the lab or, um, yeah, like the eight foot or the four foot marble maze that's going to be on the Gathering Glade. They have never really collaborated before uh, Maker Faire. Um, and then just pulling in some unique presenters to present on things that people haven't talked about. So one of them um, is... Uh, how digital fabrication has shaped art making or how it's, you know, changed uh, a few artists' uh, careers. Um, and then on their lecture, they're going to talk about uh, just how how they're thinking about the, the tools of digital fabrication just as another means to create their art. It's not going to be based on like, it's taking all of our jobs. Um, no, they're thinking about it, how, how it's all cohesively working together to help them create pieces that they never thought they could have made. It's a new tool in their toolbox. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, like, it's like adding another hammer um, yeah. in, in their eyes. That was Shelby Fleming with the Fayetteville Public Library speaking with Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis. You can find more information about Maker Fair and all the festivities at their website, faylib.org. Ahead on today's show. 
Earlier this year, the Rockin' Baker, a nonprofit bakery and job training center that served the neurodiverse community in northwest Arkansas, closed. But the founder is still working, developing the five-week series of workshops called Thriving with Neurodiversity. And I just couldn't let it go. And I said, well, if it's not in the form of bread, I can come up with something else. More about those workshops that begin Friday in about six minutes on today's Ozarks at Large. Krista Bentley is a professor of musicology at the University of Arkansas. She recently contributed to a new collection of essays about Taylor Swift's artistic projects and cultural power titled Taylor Swift, The Songs, The Star, The Fans. The reason why we wanted to talk about Taylor Swift and the the purpose of the book is to use her as a prism for understanding the many different facets of popular music, such as copyright and issues for women in the industry, um, LGBTQ plus interpretations of her work, and then also to use Taylor Swift as a prism for understanding kind of broader cultural phenomena like fandom and social media. You can hear more about Bentley's assessments of Taylor Swift in this month's Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast from the University of Arkansas. You can listen at KUAF.com, arkansasresearch.uark.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Fayetteville City Council voted unanimously to approve more than $1.6 million in funds to Seven Hills Homeless Center to address housing instability. The council received two requests for the remainder of the city's share of the American Rescue Plan Act federal funding. Seven Hills' proposal includes a plan to convert some of their dorms to an overnight shelter that would be able to help transition people into permanent housing, buying and renovating two triplexes, and continuing to partner with other community organizations. Mercy Hospital Northwest and Mercy Fort Smith are joining with more than 30 other hospitals in the state to form the Arkansas Perinatal Quality Collaborative. The collaborative will work to reduce maternal mortality rates in the state by focusing on preventable cesarean deliveries for low-risk pregnancies. Dr. Diana Juarez, an obstetrics and gynecology specialist at Mercy Northwest, says improved access and education are part of the collaboration. One of the cool things about this collaborative is it it provides, like I keep using the term evidence-based medicine, evidence-based practice, but it certainly provides information for healthcare workers, healthcare providers at all levels in the healthcare system, as well as for patients and in the community. So I think this can certainly um, help reduce any complications associated with labor and birth. The U.S. Centers for Disease and Control ranks Arkansas 14th in the country in most cesarean deliveries. Arkansas also ranks among the worst in the nation in maternal health. Dr. Juarez says maternal health should be thought of holistically and in the long term. Prior to pregnancy is making sure the patient is the healthiest that they can be, having good diet and exercise habits, and then continuing those throughout pregnancy. I think those are some of the most important things that patients should be doing. The collaborative expects to work with hospitals in Arkansas for the next two years to reduce the number of cesarean deliveries. The University of Arkansas Fort Smith is receiving a $130,000 grant from the U.S. Economic Development Administration. The award will help establish and operate an Economic Development Administration designated university center. Kendall Ross, executive director of the UAFS School for Economic Development, says the center already operates the Center for Business and Professional Development, the Family Enterprise Center, and the Arkansas Small Business and Development Center. He says this grant will help expand the work. 
I think this is going to be significant for us at the University of Arkansas Fort Smith. This will allow us to expand our services that we currently offer. Um, and I think it will be very beneficial for not only the River Valley area, but the state of Arkansas as well. Ross says the grant will also allow UAFS to further collaborate with community partners. And so how do we how do we leverage the resources that we have along with the leverages resources of um, private entities? And then how do we come alongside these businesses and industry that are in our area and help them sustain their economic development too? This announcement comes as part of a broader initiative by the U.S. Economic Development Administration, which is providing a total of $16.5 million in grants to colleges and universities across 14 states. These institutions are selected to leverage their assets, promote innovation, and strengthen regional economies. Ross says that fits into the UAFS mission. This new university center grant, we are really going to focus on that entrepreneurship side. We're going to focus on the workforce development side. And then we're going to focus on technical assistance to anyone that might need it. So strategic planning, um, efficiency of operations, things of that nature, we're happy to help. The UAFS Economic Outreach is available for residents of Oklahoma as well as Arkansas. More information can be found at uafs.org ced. Prescription fills of the opioid overdose reversal drug naloxone has tripled over the last year in northwest Arkansas. That's according to research gathered by the Arkansas Center for Health Improvement. The increase follows the implementation of Act 651, a law passed in 2021 that requires health care providers in the state prescribe naloxone when also prescribing high-dose opioids. ACI found that naloxone prescriptions jumped from just over 1,000 to more than 3,700 from fiscal year 2021 to 2022 in Benton, Carroll, Madison, and Washington counties. Dr. Joe Thompson, CEO of ACI, says in a press release that the challenge remains significant and there is more work to do to reduce the number of Arkansans dying from opioid overdoses. Earlier this year, the Food and Drug Administration announced the approval of an over-the-counter version of the drug, which is now available in pharmacies and other retailers. A commercial coffee shop on Mount Sequoia Center was unanimously approved last week by the Fayetteville Planning Commission. This comes after a plan to rezone the nonprofit center was scaled back in April. The coffee shop will be located inside the Ozark building near the center's main entrance off Assembly Drive. The new zoning for the coffee shop is Neighborhood Services General, which limits building heights to just three stories tall. The next step is a vote by the Fayetteville City Council. If approved, Mount Sequoia Board President Emily Gentry says she will solicit a commercial partner to operate the coffee shop. This is Ozarks at Large. Earlier this year, Damara Baker made the decision to close the Rockin' Baker Academy. She was the founder and CEO. The nonprofit bakery and job training program had served the autistic and larger neurodivergent community of Northwest Arkansas for six years. The press release announcing the closure included this toward the end. Quote, even as Rockin' Baker Academy closes its doors, the door to your future will remain wide open. End quote. This week, she's making good on that. 
She's teaming up with Sandy Wright, a certified professional coach, to start a five-week series called Thriving with Neurodiversity. The sessions will be hosted at Natural Grocers in Fayetteville and carry titles like Building on Your Strengths and Taking Care of Those Who Care. Last week, Damara Baker came to the Carver Center for Public Radio, and Sandy Wright joined us by phone. Damara says the decision to close the Rock and Baker Academy did open up, in fact, another opportunity. I could tell that there was nothing else that I could do to make it work. And sometimes you have to decide, okay, that's it. And at the same time, I understood the challenges that neurodivergence our community were going to continue facing. And I just couldn't let it go. And I said, well, if it's not in the form of bread, I can come up with something else. And that's when I decided to come up with this series. I said, okay, if we cannot continue providing that safe space for them to strive, for them to come every day just as they are, how can we then, how can we provide tools for them to be able to continue providing, you know, um, performing the best that they could. And that's when I came up with this series of different elements. And I wanted really to address different uh, aspects of their life. One was the personal development. The other one was the professional development that we have already done once before we closed. And then the other one was also the legal aspect that sometimes we forget uh, about how they think and how someone with a little of knowledge can manipulate them in somehow. That's what I wanted to bring the legal uh, concept to this one. So when we thought, when I thought about the personal development, I immediately thought about Sandy. She's an excellent uh, personal coach. She, she's certified. She understands neurodiversity. So it was like a natural fit talk to her. And in this way, when we began talking about, okay, how can we provide workshops that they can come and they can live with the right tools for them to learn how to cope with the stress, how to cope with changes, uh, how to see life in a more positive way, and most importantly, understand that it's nothing wrong with them and how to embrace their condition. That's it. And uh, so when the more that I began talking to Sandy at the beginning, we thought about maybe one workshop with her. We ended up with three. Mm-hmm. And it was one of those, the more that you talk, you feel the need. And it's okay, now we're addressing neurodiversion. What about the caregivers? Sometimes they are left behind. And we thought, so, okay, maybe there is something here that we can do. And let's test the receptivity for this concept. And maybe there's something that we should continue doing. Sandy Wright, let me bring you into our conversation. What when Demara came to you and you started talking, what did you feel was important to include in this series? Well, I think there are a number of things. In in the past, I served as the executive director of SLS Community when it was first launched, and I spent quite a bit of time with neurodiverse adults and their families and listened to, and I have a neurodiverse member of my family who struggles. And so as I listened to them, really the range of things became real apparent. For one thing, we tend to have um, a negative or look down view on people who are different. We tend to have not see the strengths. We tend to see the deficits as, as it's called, and we don't look at it that way, but that's how society most of the time describes it. And so just seeing the gap between having 
everyone, including us, be able to have a sense of what our strengths are, what brings us joy, what can we contribute to the community. And oftentimes with adults with autism um, and other challenges, we don't see the positive side of it. We don't see the contributions that could be made. And so the more I talked with individuals and their families, that was kind of the baseline of what we need to shift in our society. And when you look at the opportunities that are open for people to contribute, they're really minimal. Companies are hesitant to hire, um, you know, they're hesitant to make even minor accommodations. There are some bold, brave companies out there, but on the whole, um, that's really not an open door. So when Damara talked about creating a skill-based operation, something where people could actually try and succeed with elements of a workplace, um, that became really an important thing. And the other thing is we tell stories. We all tell stories about ourselves and others. And unfortunately, the stories that often are told with and about neurodiverse adults are not complete, and they tend to diminish. And so the ability to have a setting and a workshop that really focuses on strengths how do we cope with all the changes around us? You know, what do we can be curious about to find our passions and really be able to explore those no matter where someone is on the spectrum became really important. And the other element I'll just say is play and the sociability and how we connect with each other and what we are able to say, what, you know, what are you interested in? Not just what I think you're interested in, but what are you really interested in? And how can you bring creativity and curiosity into your into your um, thought pattern to share who you are with others? I liked how you said we tell stories, and the stories of neurodiverse adults, especially, not complete. And it seems like sometimes they're more that some of us share are anecdotes rather than full stories. And also, when they're shared, when you see uh, TV mm-hmm. and movies, is typically tend to be the extreme. Somebody who is super, super smart is almost like a genius or somebody who is on the opposite extreme. And here we're talking about everyday neurodiverse person who is out there. They are not fitting any of those extremes, but we're still able to uh, provide their talents and find their inner strength in every day. They don't have to be this super memory person that remembers every little thing because not all of them are. Each person is different. Each person has the different capabilities and strengths, and we just have to highlight that. As she said, we need to focus less on the deficit and more on how they can contribute to our society. We all have things that we need and want to work on to get better, and it's no different no matter what your situation or circumstances. And when we start to realize that there's no difference in terms of that desire to get better, that desire to, to grow is in all of us, no matter what our situations are. So that's another uh, mindset shift, I think, that we as a society need to make, um, you know, to just take a look at what those things are and be welcoming and open and curious. Mara, you touched on this earlier. The, the five parts of the series include unlocking potential, navigating life's challenges, building skills for success, support for caregivers. The fifth one is also very interesting, creative, inclusive communities, meaning that we've all got 
to work here. That's correct. Uh, mm-hmm. And I feel that's something that we want to provide by this series is how do we educate the community at large so that they also become more welcoming to those who are different than we are. Uh, because at the end, everybody belongs to this community. And But how do we facilitate for, uh, for those who are struggling or they don't feel that they fit? One of the challenges that can that can exist is just a simple job interview, right? Oh, totally, mm-hmm. totally. This is one of the biggest challenges, but I, I would say also one of the biggest opportunities that we have. Um, right now, I would say that hiring managers need to reframe how they conduct a job interview. Uh, not everybody's going to fit the traditional social norms. So if my expectation as a hiring manager is that you have to make eye contact, automatic, automatically I'm going to disqualify those who don't fit. And that's where most of these neurodivergents are going to fall uh, because they, um, they cannot make the eye contact. And the pressure that they have of making eye contact adds a different layer of anxiety. So that means... For me as a hiring manager, I see this person not making eye contact, really, really nervous. What is he hiding? What is she hiding? So that's another reason why to disqualify them. Uh, I would say that right now the biggest opportunity is for hiring managers to really change that paradigm and begin thinking differently. What is this person trying to tell me by that behavior? How do I accommodate how do I create a space that this person feels more comfortable so that I'm not causing the anxiety. Uh, does he need that maybe sitting across the table? Maybe that's a little too intimidating. Maybe we need to have a different kind of setting. Maybe it's a little more relaxed on our couch or maybe in another space that is more quiet. There are different accommodations that don't always imply spending a lot of money, but if more people were aware of those, I think it would make it so much easier. Because at the end, any of these individuals, they can bring so much talent and so much capability to any organization that sometimes people don't realize how much that can be because they're still focusing on the negative side. One clear example that I have, most of them, they are super dedicated. They're super loyal. And they always want to prove that they can do it. You as an employer... You cannot expect anything less than that. I mean, in our case at the bakery, I almost felt that every time that we had a bad, uh, a bad weather or icy roads, I almost felt that I have to really change the doors because I knew mm. that they were going to come to work. And for them was, no, today is the day that we have to produce. That's it. We have to show up. And these are people that will always show up. And I think as an employer, that's one of the main traits that you are looking for someone. You don't want someone that doesn't show up every day. They do. One, just one example I'll give out of my own experience is that, you know, my neurodiverse uh, um, family member was struggling and angry and, you know, and, and we were all getting frustrated and, you know, just like, why, why, why is he doing this? And I had an opportunity to sit down and talk with him one-on-one and I found out why he was so angry and why he was taking it out on us. It's because he felt alone. He didn't feel like he belonged anywhere. He didn't have anything to do. And once I understood where it was coming from, then we could address it together. But I think we stop at a certain point with someone's behavior. And don't be curious. We aren't curious about 
you know, what really is going on underneath. And I think Damara described it well, not belonging, not feeling like I can contribute, not feeling like people understand, not being asked to do something outside of what seems the simplest thing I can. Stretch me a little bit. Stretch me a little bit and see what I really can do. What I love about this series, it's thriving yes. is the first word. Not not surviving, not getting better, but thriving. That was an intentional word choice? Totally, and I have to give yes. credit to Sandy for that one. Yes, so it, and the other thing I want to just throw out, Kyle, is that we understand that some people are not as verbal as others. Some people don't read. Other people are highly able to read and do all sorts of, you know, additional things. And we want people to feel welcome no matter where they are on the spectrum. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kyle. Namara Baker and Sandy Wright will facilitate the five-part series, Thriving with Neurodiversity, beginning this Friday with the session, Building on Your Strengths, Managing Change and Thriving, a workshop for curious neurodiverse adults. This takes place in the community room at Natural Grocers in Fayetteville from 10 until 1 on Friday. No registration fee. More information about all of the sessions can be found at the Rockin' Baker Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as on Eventbrite. This is Ozarks at Large. Reflections in Black, and I'm your host, Raven Cook. Reflections in Black is a segment dedicated to considering the legacy of Black Americans in the United States and around the globe. Each episode has been carefully designed to lead you to wonder, encourage you to research, and support you in ways to use new knowledge to make a difference in our world. Our first step starts here and now with the new episode of Reflections in Black. For my birthday this year, my good friend Ramon Balderas bought me a gift, a book called Illustrated Black History by George McCallman. I have been eyeballing the book at the University Bookstore because of its bright colors and creative expressions of black contemporary and historical figures. I immediately got home and started flipping through the pages wondering how this text might expound on black historical figures, and I came across a name and a title I had never thought much about. Leah Penniman is a black Creole farmer and a food justice activist. Food justice activist? I needed to know more. Leah Penniman was born in 1980 and learned about farming at the age of 16 from her grandmother. Her grandmother's teaching would become her life's work as she graduated from Clark University in Massachusetts with a bachelor's in environmental science and a master's degree in science education. She worked for the Food Project in Boston and currently works to educate as co-director of Soul Fire Farm in New York City. Leah Penniman published the book Farming While Black in 2018, and in 2019, she received the James Beard Leadership Award. The work of food activists to educate on inequity is paramount in the era of climate change. 
Some interesting notes that I came across while learning of Leah Peniman is the call for new language that holds systems of inequity accountable. In the Illustrated Black History text, scholars highlight the language around food apartheid rather than food deserts. So food apartheid rejects the notion that food deserts are naturally occurring gaps in food accessibility. Rather, they are the results of codified, actively protected policies that privilege the profits of white dominant corporations over the health and well-being of communities of color specifically black communities. In order to change our process of doing things, we must first acknowledge the systems that are complicit in maintaining that oppression. We have to reflect and make strides to move forward. How will you take those steps today? Perhaps it's donating to Leah Penniman's organization. Perhaps it's purchasing her book and then making it part of a book club or even learning more about Black Americans in the fight for liberation in land and food. I know that's my first step, too. I'll leave you with the quote from Leah Penniman. We're reclaiming our right to belong on the earth and have agency in the food system. Until next time, peace. The True Lit Festival at the Fayetteville Public Library is continuing through October 26th when it will conclude with R.L. Stein, recognized as the best-selling author in history, as in ever. He's the creator of the Goosebumps series. Other authors appearing between now and then include Sidney Thompson discussing his latest installment in the historical fiction Bass Reeves trilogy, The Forsaken and the Dead. That's Sunday afternoon at 2. Previous Ozarks at Large guest Andrea L. Rogers, author of Man-Made Monsters, a wonderful book of monster-filled short stories, will lead workshops for young writers wanting to write horror. That takes place Monday afternoon and Monday evening. And tonight, Daniel Jose Older is at the library discussing narrative fundamentals. He's the author of several novels, and he's the lead story architect for Star Wars The High Republic. And he says the best fantasy and science fiction stories connect us to the real world. Even though it is another world, we connect to those characters, right? We believe in their struggles. We understand the things they're going through, whether it's, you know, feeling restless as a teenager on a desert planet or or feeling like, you know, there are, are forces arrayed against us that are insurmountable. There are things in there that we understand. And that those are the pieces that make the rest of the stories so exciting. We can go all in with the fantasy aspect of it because the human aspect of it feels so real. Daniel Jose Older is at the Fayetteville Public Library tonight as part of the True Lit Festival. Details about his talk and the rest of the events between now and the 26th can be found at faylib.org. And by the way, we're scheduled to talk with R.L. Stein for Friday's Ozarks at Large. This is Ozarks at Large. Late last month, Dr. Sarah Deer came to the University of Arkansas campus as a guest of the U of A Gender Studies Program. 
She is a university distinguished professor at the University of Kansas and chief justice for the Prairie Island Indian Community Court of Appeals. She's spent years studying the intersection of federal Indian law and victims' rights and is a chief scholar in research about the rate of violence against Native women. She's a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation of Oklahoma and author of the book, The Beginning and End of Rape, Confronting Sexual Violence in Native America. She says her 25 years of studying violence against Native women has broadened what we know about the subject. We didn't have data on on how many um, Native women were experiencing assault until about 1999. And the Bureau of Justice Assistance, um, part of the Department of Justice, released a really small little report called American Indians and Crime. And it caught the attention of a lot of us because we already knew you know, we knew instinctively that the data was really troubling, um, but it wasn't until that data was published because oftentimes Native people are like classified as other. So you have, if, if you have a study, it's black, white, or other. And so we didn't have any criminal data from a national perspective. And so that really changed things because we thought, okay, well, it's not just us. Right? Mm-hmm. There actually is some some proof here that the crime rates are out of control. When I say it goes back centuries, I mean, we can trace this to the mistreatment and and the removal of Native populations from their historical land. Exactly. I was just teaching some of my uh, students yesterday. I I teach a treaties course, and I was teaching them about the Yakima Treaty of 1855. And one of the challenges in even getting the tribal leaders to the table is that a lot of the squatters, the settlers that were coming in because they they found gold, um, were sexually assaulting the women. And so the tribes fought back. And that often is an underlying cause of a lot of what we might call the massacres or what they used to call massacres usually is predicated on mistreatment of Native women. There was a belief that, I think I've read that there was a belief that if you could, now there's not really a good term for this, neutralize or quiet mm-hmm. or diminish the women mm-hmm. of Native populations, you've gone a long way to to really sort of, you know, quieting or eradicating the population itself. Absolutely. If you want to go after a people, go after the people who reproduce. Um, and there were targeted um, uh, efforts. Uh, uh, and even in the 20th century, very, very high rates of sterilization happening as late as the 1970s, and some say it's still going on. Um, but it was a systemic effort to try to disappear tribal nations. And so what is that through line like if, if you have these sorts of colonialism effects mm-hmm you know, in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries to violence against Native women in the 20th and 21st? Well, I would I would anticipate if we had data from the uh. 1800s that we would see the same thing. But it was simply a story that was not told. And I think it is true that patriarchy in a way was introduced through colonialism because many of the nations, including my own, um, were matrilineal, right? And so women sort of run the family and they fa- and they were the farmers. So when these folks from the European governments come in, they're used to dealing with men, right? And so they ignored any of the political power that the women might have and made treaties with only men. Um, and I think that they're, you know, because of that, I think there's sort of a legacy of these treaties that were signed being tainted by this effort to I guess, put women where they belong, as, as a European might think. When you're writing and, and um, 
and cataloging for an audience for us to read. How do you go about it? I mean, if you only have data for so long. Well, we do. What I what I will do as a researcher is I will go back and I'll pull, um, say, there was a commissioner of Indian affairs throughout the 19th century. And each year they issued a report. Um, and those reports have been looked at. They're digitized. You can find them now. But what I, I discover is the gendered violence. And I'm not the first person to read the report, but I pull data or pull, you know, at least some anecdotal data out of these um, 18th uh, 19th century um, books from the federal government. It's there. Um, I found it and I quote it. And I try to help my readers understand the linkage between the historical um, behavior and the continuing behavior. I don't think there's ever been sort of a pause. Mm. I just think that um, the stories haven't been told. What is the current uh, violence against women and Native women, still a crisis? Absolutely. Um, The Department of Justice released a report in 2016, which is the most recent data, a national data that I'm aware of. And um, they concluded that over 80% of Native women will experience violence in their lifetimes, and over half will be a victim of sexual assault. So in Indian country, it's often thought, you don't prepare your daughter for what to do if she's raped. You you prepare her for what to do when she's raped because it's inevitable in some communities. Obviously, this is horrible, but what can that do? Just that, that sort of sense of inevitability about it. I mean, mm-hmm. that is a horrible, traumatic cloud to be hanging over. Absolutely. And so much of what I talk about, you know, is the how Native women are hurting. <laughs> um, but they're also thriving. There is a wonderful movement of strong Native women who are protecting their daughters and speaking up and going to testify in front of Congress. Um, so I like to sort of balance my, my sad story with, you know, it's it, it, there are really spectacular women doing amazing things all around the country. I don't want to give listeners the impression that you have only advocated for native women yeah. who are victims <laughs> of violence. You you've done so much to, you know, the the oh, what was the act? I, I mean, the Violence Against yes, Women Act. The, yeah. the Violence Against Women Act. Um are you optimistic that things are getting better? I think so. Um I um yeah. I'm not asked that very often. Um, I think that Congress is much more aware of the problem. Um, And with the election of two Native women to Congress a few years ago, that was an epic moment to actually have representation from Native women in Congress. And they know the issues and they can speak to them and they can educate their colleagues. So that's been a big um, uh, fountain of, I don't know what I'm trying to say, um, that makes me feel optimistic, right, that we have now a voice in Congress for the first time. You mentioned, and this is for society in whole, as a whole, preparing women, f- daughters, you know, for perhaps an inevitability. What about teaching boys, <laughs> <laughs> you know, not to commit acts of violence against women? Well, that's always the issue, right? But the data from the Department of Justice suggests that the vast majority of perpetrators are non-Native men. And um, tribes have lacked jurisdiction to arrest or prosecute or convict um, a white person for committing sexual assault. Yeah, that's one of the other wildly interesting aspects of this is, yeah. you know, jurisdiction and and treaties of jurisdiction mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. have been gray 
<laughs> for some time. Right. Well, it, 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 what surprises a lot of my students is that that particular jurisdictional framework is very recent. It was a Supreme Court case in 1978 um, that determined tribes cannot criminally prosecute non-Indians for anything, even murder, even child abuse. Um, now, that has changed very mm-hmm. recently. In 2022, there was a new iteration of the Violence Against Women Act, we call it VAWA, um, that has returned the jurisdiction over all people who commit sexual assault on Indian reservations. So big victory um, could be better, right? We always have to kind of work incrementally. It's hard to do a big sea change in Congress. But um, I think because we have more voices speaking up, uh, we can continue to see improvement in these kinds of laws. What led you to this career? Oh, my gosh. Um, Well, I I think – I think I always knew I would go to law school. I was in denial about it for a while, maybe. Um, my father was one of the only Native attorneys uh, uh, in Wichita when I was growing up. And so I was exposed to people who were really struggling. Um, and he was then the first Native American judge in the state of Kansas. So I, I was sort of following in his footsteps, but not telling him. <laughs> um, but I had worked at a rape crisis center in Lawrence, Kansas, while I was a, a student. And um a lot of the women that I worked with for, were from Haskell, which is the federal um, college in Lawrence, Kansas. It used to be a boarding school. And as I realized, because I, I grew up in Wichita, there's not a huge Indian community there. But what I was learning from the women at Haskell that contacted the Rape Crisis Center is that they came from the reservation and there was no rape crisis hotline on the reservation. And so it was when they got to Lawrence that they reached out for help. For the first time. And that led you to... Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I originally wanted to be a sex crimes prosecutor. I, I thought I'd be good at it, and I thought that I could do it in a very victim-centered way. But I got a little sidetracked when I took federal Indian law, and I learned about the criminal system on reservations, which is very, very different than anywhere else. And it, it tugged at my heartstrings. At the same time, I'm working with women from Haskell who have been assaulted. And I thought, I'm going in a little bit different direction here. I'm not quite sure what I want to do. Uh, and I ended up lucking out. And my first job was working at the Violence Against Women office in Washington, D.C. So I took the bar exam. And the next day, I got on a plane. Dr. Sarah Deer is a university distinguished professor at the University of Kansas and chief justice for the Prairie Island Indian Community Court of Appeals. She's also the author of the book, The Beginning and End of Rape, Confronting Sexual Violence in Native America. She was a guest of the University of Arkansas Gender Studies program late last month, and we spoke inside the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, the Multicultural Center at the University of Arkansas is a place of belonging and welcoming people of all backgrounds. So, what does their work look like after elected officials in Arkansas have opposed diversity, equity, and inclusion?
we're not going to shy away from the work. Um, we're leaning into it and, and we're, we're making very intentional efforts every day. That's tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. All right, Matthew Moore, yes. your son James is about to experience his first Halloween in a couple of weeks. That's true. He, you're probably not planning for trick-or-treating or anything since he's just a few months old. Actually, we are, but it's fine. Uh, awesome. It's an excuse for us All right. to get candy. <laughs> well done. <laughs> but you're probably not already thinking about what's an appropriate Halloween movie for him to watch. That's a few years down the road. Correct. I have not thought about that. Okay. Well, the folks at Dish have okay. asked... Every state, what is the most popular child-friendly Halloween movie? Mm -hmm. In Arkansas, it's Scooby-Doo. And I'm guessing that's the live action. Prince Jr. version? And wasn't it Sarah Michelle Gellar? Yeah. All right. So according to Arkansas, Hmm. people, they most like um, Scooby-Doo for their kid-friendly Halloween movie. Do you know what's a favorite in my in-laws' family? For children children ready? Yes. I mean, like, they watch as adults still, but their favorite is Halloween Town. Did you ever see Halloween Town? I did not. It was a Disney Channel, Disney Channel original okay. movie. Okay. It's uh, of its time. Well, sure. I'll leave it at that. Oklahoma and Kansas are big Ghostbuster fans. Mm. Our neighbors south in Texas like the Adams Family movie. Mm. In Louisiana, it's E.T., this all according to Dish. Uh, Mississippi is Adams Family. Tennessee, yeah. Charlie Brown, or it's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown. I don't know if you call that a movie, but yeah. But my hat is off to Rhode Island and the District of Columbia because <laughs> their favorite child-friendly Halloween movie yep. is the 1931 version of Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. That's fantastic. This is Ozarks at Large, a production of 91.3 KUAF Fayetteville. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jack Travis, Jacqueline Frillick, and Raven Cook. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Matthew produced today's program in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Don't forget, you can keep up with everything Ozarks at Large with the free-to-you Ozarks at Large newsletter details, pictures, and links about the stories and interviews on each show, plus your chance to play the Ozarks at Large word game. It's a free newsletter. Did I mention that? You can sign up right now at KUAF.com. With the with the word game, uh, the words correlate with previous stories on Ozarks at Large. So if you are a regular listener of the show, you will probably be a step ahead. Although if you're like me, you're still going to do yeah, poorly. Gonna say. All right. We'll be with you tomorrow. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. The Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville invites guests this October for Halloween-themed events and programming for all ages and abilities. Hallow Steam takes place October 19th through the 31st for hands-on fall-themed activities. And on October 27th, Hallow Zing for children with special needs and their families in a sensory-friendly environment. More at amazium.org. Carmelita's Modern Mexican Cuisine is located at 7022 West Sunset Avenue in Springdale. Serving authentic Northern Mexican and Southern Californian-style lunch from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. and Modern Mexican dinner 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. Monday through Friday. More information at carmelitasnwa.com.